states. Were you looking to be held together by the lawyers, by an agreement on paper or by arms? Away. I arrive bringing these beyond all the forces of courts and arms, these to hold you together as firmly as the earth itself is held together. The old breath of life ever new here, I pass it by contact to you, America. Oh, mother, have you done much for me? Behold, there shall be from me much done for you. There shall be from me a new friendship. It shall be called after my name. It shall circulate through the states indifferent of place. It shall twist and intertwist them through and around each other. Compact they shall be, showing new signs. Affections shall solve every one of the problems of freedom. Those who love each other shall be invincible. They shall finally make America completely victorious in my name. One from Massachusetts shall be comrade to a Missourian. One from Maine or Vermont and a Carolinian and an Oregonese shall be friends triune, more precious to each other than all the riches of the earth. To Michigan shall be wafted perfume from Florida, to the Manahatta from Cuba or Mexico. Not the perfume of flowers, but sweeter and wafted beyond death. No danger shall balk Columbia's lovers. If need be, a thousand shall sternly emulate themselves for one. The Canuck shall be willing to lay down his life for the Kansian and the Kansian for the Canuck on due need. It shall be customary in all directions, in the houses and streets, to see manly affection. The departing brother or friend shall salute the remaining brother or friend with a kiss. There shall be innovations. There shall be countless linked hands namely the Northeasterners and the Northwesterners and the Southwesterners and those of the interior and all their brood. These shall be masters of the world anew, under a new power. They shall laugh to scorn the attacks of all the remainder of the world. The most dauntless and rude shall touch face to face lightly. The dependence of liberty shall be lovers. The continuance of equality shall be comrades. These shall tie and band stronger than hoops of iron. I, ecstatic, O oh partners, O oh lands, henceforth with the love of lovers tie you. I'm reading uh, two poems this morning. The first, Perhaps the World Ends Here, by Joy Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table, no matter what we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared and set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies, and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves and as we put ourselves back together 
once again at this table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. The second poem is entitled Prayer Ballot by Luke Stephen Stevens Royer, written for the presidential election of 2016. I walk in as on a pilgrimage. The altar cloths are red, white, and blue. The ushers are the women who have been running these things, who have been running everything since before I was born. I'm handed the ballot like a scroll because the questions that seem important, ancient and modern, of what my God and country ask of me, who? Who for commissioner, mayor, president? Who for district eight, ward seven, school board? Who will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly? I make my mark with at least a shred of hope that something good will come from this. And regardless, I remember the world won't be destroyed entirely by this. The world won't be saved entirely by this. Marking my vote is like kneeling in prayer because neither will accomplish anything right away. But the purpose of both is to remind me of my deepest hope for the world that I'm trying to help create. So I rise from prayer, turn in my ballot, and remember the who is me and us and we the people. And again, I set to the task that is mine. Justice, mercy, humble service in my small corner of the world. Sometimes we have to go away from what is comfortable to realize what we, the water we've been swimming in the whole time. And I have a story about that for you all. As many of you know, I lived in Eastern Europe for a few years. I was in Belgrade, Serbia, working with the most courageous people I have ever met. People who risked all that they had in order to speak out for peace, human rights, LGBT equality, and an end to religious and ethnic nationalism. And two of those brave people were recently granted political asylum in Canada because of their activism. So they're now making a new life in Calgary. So my friends and colleagues there knew I was religious 
and it confused the hell out of them. <laughs> Because of the history of that region and, their, and those political commitments that animated their lives, they had no religious community. There was no progressive religion for them. There was no sizable religious community in Belgrade that encouraged their deep justice commitments or even just neutral on those issues. They didn't want to be told by preachers and teachers that women shouldn't work outside the home, that homosexuality was immoral, that God had a favorite ethnic group. And so they didn't do religion. And if I was in their shoes, I probably wouldn't either. And so here I came with my weird American ways and my terrible Serbian language skills and my religion. And it was an even, even a faith-based program, the Brethren Volunteer Service, that sent me to them. And that added this whole other level of confusion. So they were confused and fascinated. And as our trust grew and my language skills progressed, we began to talk about it. So I told them about our Unitarian Universalist values, our commitment to the equality of all people, the environment, to peace, and how we strive to live out these values every day. And I also mentioned that we choose our own leaders in our church, both in the churches themselves and on our denominational level. And that was the detail that most surprised them. First, they thought I was misstating something when I talked about how our church was a democracy. And so they had to clarify that I wasn't just using the wrong word, which happened a lot. So I get why they had that confusion. But they had never heard of a religious community that is a democracy. The Roman Catholic, Serbian Orthodox, and Muslim communities that they knew were all hierarchical. The people who worshiped there didn't get to make the decisions about who would lead their church, how the church would be run, and and what the church would do with its resources. So they heard my Serbian simplified version of our fifth principle, which is the right of conscience, conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large, and were surprised. And I was surprised by their surprise. I grew up in this faith and knew no other way to do church. This is the only way I had known. I grew up with parents who each took their turn on the board of trustees, and we talked about church business over dinner those years. I joined my church at 16 and cast my first votes in congregational meetings before I could vote in federal elections. And the democratic process in churches is the water that I have always swum in. And so when I got to seminary and started really studying this stuff, I learned that my Serbian friends were right in their surprise. I was the one who was unusual. I learned how exceptional our commitment to democracy is. What we do is rare and precious. I was studying beside people who were preparing for the ministry in the Methodist tradition, and in that tradition, the bishop tells you where to go and tells you when you are done at that church and moving on. And so they have an anxious period, I think every April, where the news comes out if you get to stay where you are or if you get switched to another church starting over the summer. So our democratic process, our practice of having the members of the congregation hold the highest authority is rare and precious. 
There's no bishop or pope or regional committee or other group that can mandate that this church do anything, though the denominational staff and others have plenty of suggestions about best practice, and some of them are wonderful. It is the members of People's Church who select ministers and elect board members, pass budgets, and decide on the direction of the church. It is all of you who give away some of your power to me and to other leaders to do the work of the church, but you all can take that back if you decide to. So this is a rare and precious power that you all have, and most members of most religious communities have never held any sort of power like this. The word for what we do is congregational polity. Polity is the fancy academic word for form of governance. And since our highest authority is the congregation, we practice congregational polity. The Baptists and the Congregationalists and a few others are with us in this, in this practice. And there are a few other forms of church polity, including Episcopal polity, which means a bishop is in charge, and Presbyterian polity, which means a council of leaders is in charge. And you can see that this stuff matters because a lot of denominations take their name from their form of polity. Our practice and heritage of congregational polity matters. Our religious ancestors on this continent, the Puritans, came to this continent in part to practice congregational polity, to to allow each church to decide what they were going to do. And then the reason that those Puritan communities involved in some cases over the centuries and centuries to Unitarian Universalists is congregational polity. In those communities, people started asking questions. Do you need to have had a personal conversion experience to be a member of our church? How do we incorporate the newest scholarship in religion and science to our understanding of God? Do we all need to believe the same thing to be church together? How can we be a church for humanists? Can we have people in leadership who are women or LGBTQ? And when these questions were asked, there was no bishop or council of leaders to stop people from asking them. And so people started experimenting. And as neighboring churches saw what the other church was doing and took the best ideas, we changed and changed and changed. So that is how we got from Puritans to Unitarian Universalists in a little less than 400 years. (laughs) Slow process. But over time, the changes are big and dramatic. So if those Puritan ancestors came to worship with us today, there would be a lot they wouldn't recognize. But they would recognize our annual meeting that's happening later today. They would recognize the congregational meeting. They would recognize the practice of church members electing their leaders, passing budgets, and making plans together. This piece of our practice is one of the most direct links to those ancestors. It matters that we do this. It matters that we engage in the messy and sometimes inefficient and confusing democratic process. It matters because democracy is an important cure, but we aren't doing this just for people's church, just because it's a great way to organize a church. 
we know that this community can be a place to practice the habits of the heart necessary to sustain democracy on a wider level. Over the past month, I've been leading classes on these habits of the hearts. We've been pow had powerful conversations and sharing and learning about the practice of welcoming strangers, finding our voice, living with tension, and remembering we are all in this together. This is based on the work of Quaker educator Parker J. Palmer, whose book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, The Courage Create a Politics of the of Worthy of the Human Spirit, I commend to all of you. It's a great book. And in that book, he tells a story about a 1974 visit to an independent black church near America, Americus, Georgia, that has committed itself to be a place to practice democracy. I arrived at church early to attend the adult Sunday school class that preceded the worship service, he writes. Though I do not remember the topic being discussed, I will never forget the way the class was conducted. Only three members were present that morning. Still, these three ran the classes they always did by Robert's Rules of Order, a set of procedures that helps groups make decisions in an orderly manner while avoiding stalemates and free-for-alls. One member of the class served as presiding clerk, another as recording clerk, and the other as sergeant-at-arms, in case the other two got, a, got out of hand, or so I supposed. I was young then, Parker continues, and as white as I am today, walled off as much, walled off as, much as well off, educated without knowing much, and I was baffled. When I met with the pastor after the worship service, I blurted out, I don't get it. Why did they have to run Sunday school class so formally? Why couldn't they just sit and talk to each other? Well, he said, if you don't get that, there's probably a lot you don't get. A comment that got my attention. I did not take notes, so I cannot reproduce his comments verbatim, Parker continues, and yet the imprint of what I learned that morning remains to this day. The people who belong to this church are American citizens who have had a long history of being deprived of their rights and shut out of the political process. Thanks to civil rights legislation, those doors are now open to them. Roadblocks remain, of course, and will for a long time, but now our parishioners can speak up at caucuses, testify at hearings, make their needs and aspirations known to legislators, and do all of the things that other citizens do to get their voices heard in the halls of power. As they move into the larger world, we want them to know what it's like to participate in a formal discussion or debate so they will not feel intimidated by what's out there. Robert's rule of, Rules of Order gives them a taste of that. I'm not suggesting that our religious education classes start operating this way with Robert's Rules of Orders. So I echo the experience of these people in this church. It was through church work that I learned Robert's Rules of Order. I'm encouraging us to ponder how we can use the democratic skills we learn here and practice here beyond these walls to make our values real in the world. We know that voting is only a small piece of citizenship and of membership we know that participating in elections and congregational meetings matter, matters, but we are required to do more than just show up occasionally. We are called to do democracy over and over and over again, 
as we build connections with our neighbors, as we show up to committee meetings and county commission meetings and other meetings, and do the unglamorous work of getting our voice heard and making our values real. Walt Whitman reminds us over and over again of the promise of America, promises that he knew we had not yet lived into. He reminds us that democracy is more than voting, that we are bound together as a nation not by laws, but fundamentally at our best by love. It is the practices that lead to it is these practices that lead to internal transformation. He writes, Did you too, O oh friend, suppose democracy was only for elections, for politics, for a party name? I say democracy is only of use there that it may pass on and come to its flower and fruit in manners, in the highest form of interaction between people and their beliefs, in religion, literature, colleges and schools, democracy in all public and private life. Democracy matters, and doing the work of democracy is a spiritual practice. When we engage deeply in this work, voting, strengthening our neighborhoods, building relationships and coalitions with people we might not agree with on everything, but agree with about enough to work together, and living with the tensions and conflicts that arise when we value transparency and inclusion over efficiency and hierarchy. We are doing the important spiritual work that will transform us and transform the world. It will come to its flower and its fruit in the highest form of interaction between people and in religion, literature, and all public and private life. So let us be about our task. Let us use well the rare and precious power that is entrusted to us. Let us engage in the spiritual practice of democracy. Let us live our commitments to the democratic process in the congregational meeting in a few minutes, and then carry that momentum forward to make our values real in the world. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.